We're going to do some teaching now from the Bible, so if you've got a copy, you can pull it out. If you don't, underneath the seat in front of you, you'll find, uh, somewhere near you, you'll find one of these that looks just like this. And uh, we are going to be looking a little bit in, in our series in John. Uh, today's a little bit of a different sermon. It's more of a topical sermon about Thanksgiving, but uh, we are going to look at John chapter 11. So if you do grab one of these Bibles or you Google uh, John chapter 11, uh, in this Bible it's going to be page 953 if you're using one of those under-the-seat Bibles. So, um, yeah, super excited to talk about what I titled. You're probably like, if you read the email, and if you don't, this is why you should read the email. You should know when and when not to come to church. I, I, I'm titling this sermon, The Paradoxical Connection Between Complaining and Thanksgiving. So you're wondering, wait, what? On Thanksgiving weekend, you're going to preach a sermon about complaining. That's correct. <laughs> you have deduced correctly that this is what we shall be doing. Now, I want to share about this uh, idea, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it as we go, about why this thought has been sort of weighing on my heart. I've been wrestling, can I say that? I've, I do that sometimes, like this thought will just sort of penetrate and weigh on me, uh, and it has been for some time now, uh, but I felt like God just sort of releasing it this week and said, I think this is the week to talk about this idea, and you've seen little crumbs of this pressure and weight that's been on me, which is a... Um, a weight about teaching our community how to lament. And, and this is not something new. We have a principle here at Sedaris called Lead with Lament. And, and maybe after today's sermon, you understand why that's one of our uh, sort of core principles as a church. Why do we lead with lament? And, and, and so this idea did not come directly out of the text. So typically when I preach a sermon, or Ryan preaches a sermon, we start, we read the text, we study the text, just like we do in cohort. We look for observations, we're looking for key words, we're looking for connections, we're looking for big ideas. How does it connect with the rest of the book of John? And then from what we read, because we're reading God's revelation, we want to see what he said and then see what he wants to say through it, then from that we pull an idea. But that's not how it happened this week. <laughs> so I just want to be clear on that. Uh, because we think it's really important to teach the way we normally teach, which is to start with the revelation of God as he's revealed himself, as he's spoken to us, and then make our conclusions from that. I'm sort of jumping in with something I wanted to talk about, but I'm seeing it also in the text, and so I'm going to show you how I see it in the text. But I just want to make that clear, uh, because if this is like the only sermon you come to at Sedaris, I don't want you to think this is the right way to teach the Word of God. It's, it's typically not best to just think about something and then find a passage that sort of supports it. That could lead to all sorts of danger, and so we don't do that here. So if it's your first time, welcome. We'll be back in, in John next week, and we'll be doing what's called exegetical work. This is a little bit more of topical work about the paradoxical connection between complaining and giving thanks. And so um, more on some of that later and why this thought about lament and complaining to God is so important to me. Um, but before I show you where I see it in the text, um, I, I just give you a few thoughts on it so you can see where we're going. It's really important for us. I'm not, I'm not saying us as Americans or us as American Christians, and I know not all of us are Americans, uh, but there is a tendency within American Christianity, and you might not even be a Christian, and we're glad that you're here. That's part of why we exist, to help you consider uh, what Christianity is and, and who, who it's all about, which is Jesus. Uh, but there is this thing within 
American Christianity that uh, I don't think we're very good at Thanksgiving. He's like, what do you mean? No, no, no. I think we give a lot of thanks. We, we, we say the right things. We do the right things. But actually, there's not a deep well of, 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 of thanks giving to God. And I think the reason is, is actually not because we're terrible, ungrateful people that have just been spoiled, although we have been spoiled, but that's not, typical, that's not the only reason. I think the main thing is that we've forgotten how to do the very thing that God taught us how to do, which is to lament the deep brokenness of the world, our own pain, our own sin, our own suffering, the unrighteousness that we see in the world, the injustice that we see. So we're bad at it, even though God has whole books called Lamentations. Like, where do we miss that? And one-third of the psalms, the beloved psalms, are psalms of lament, complaining to God. We'll talk about that. So, like, why, why, why did we miss that rich heritage that we received from God's people, the people of Israel, as they, as they wrote the Hebrew Scriptures and God preserved and passed those along to us? Why? So that we would know how to do this. But if we don't know how to do this, our thanksgiving is actually the thing that's affected most. And the complaining that we do do is unrighteous complaining rather than what we'll talk about is righteous complaining. So we'll get into all that. And, and the big idea at the end of it will be that God has given us a path, a clear path to become people of thankfulness, to become the, the greatest thanksgivers in all the earth. As the worshipers of the one true God, we should be the greatest thanksgivers in all the earth. But he's, the path he's given us takes us through valleys. And, and we can't go around those valleys or fly over those valleys or use technology to skip the valleys, we have to go through it, and when we go through it, then the thanksgiving on the other side is not just of a quantity, but a quality that is very different. But we've got to learn how to do it, and I don't think we know how. I think we've taught, actually, been taught wrong how to do real thanksgiving. So I'm going to talk about this paradoxical connection. And the idea is, uh, goes a little bit like this. I'm going to give just like some simple illustrations now, so that the more deep stuff that's going to come at the end, you can see how the pattern goes. And perhaps when I give you these simple examples, you'll see why Americans in particular struggle to believe this paradox. Why? Because we are in a land of abundance. You, 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 know, you might not be the richest person in the room, but you are the richest people in the world. And so your abundance keeps you from, I think, real thanksgiving, which again is a paradox in and of itself. So let me give you some of these just, just simple illustrations. So you've never really appreciated the brilliance of a cup of cold water, right? Most of you probably not. Because you've never really been thirsty. You see? So you can't be thankful for a cup of cold water in the way that you could be had you experienced true thirst, which much of the world does. Okay, so... I think, I'm not a medical doctor, but technically speaking, most of your, you guys and your stomachs are pretty much full all the time. And so you've never really hungered in the way of hungry. And you've never really cried out to God for food. Now, maybe some of you have, but most of you haven't. I have not. And so it's, it, it, it's very hard for you to truly appreciate and be truly celebratory at the brilliance of bread. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. We talked about that in John. You can go listen to that sermon. But, but that even misses you. It doesn't hit you because you don't understand the brilliance of bread 
Instead, bread is like your enemy because it's a, a part of your dieting plan to get rid of that bread. So how can you truly give thanks for the thing that is your enemy because you're trying to cut weight? You see how this works? How can you have true thankfulness for something as simple as bread if you've never hungered, okay? If you've never cried out to God for your daily bread because you're not sure where it's coming from. And so you struggle, and, and it's not really your fault. But this is why we've got to get better at it in other ways. We've got to practice together. Again, it's like, why are we talking about complaining and lamenting on Thanksgiving? There's so much to be thankful. Of course, I don't want you to hear that I'm not thankful. I'm so thankful. But I want to be so thankful. And I don't know if I always am. Okay, so here's another. This is a funny one. This one's embarrassing to me. I've actually, for some reason, shared this story several times in the last few weeks, and so I feel like I need to share it publicly with the whole church, a bit of a confession, so that I don't have to keep sharing it privately, because every time I share it, it hurts. Like, imagine if you grew up for, for your whole life in the shadow of Mount Rainier, and you've seen it for 40 years, and so it's become just sort of normal to you. You sort of take it for granted. And so like for 40 years, you've, you've never been to the national park. And you lived here. You're, that's me. I ha like I could tell you I'm so thankful for the mountains. No, I'm not. Texans who move here are thankful for the mountains. If you're from the great plains of the Midwest, you see Mount Rainier and your heart gushes to God's greatness and glory. Not me. I've never even been to the National Park in 40 years. Pray for me. How could I never go? I don't know, but now it's kind of a thing. Okay. You see how this works? Because you've never wa I've never wanted it. I've, I've, ne I've never not had it, and so when I see it, I just sort of take it for, even though I would say, yeah, 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 I'm thankful for the mountains. So you see the problem. If you've never had need, if you've never needed to, or, or you just aren't comfortable with crying out in the recognition of the deficit, of the gap, of the unmet desire, of the pain, if you've never done that, then you will really struggle to truly and deeply and truthfully give thanks where it's due. That's just the paradoxical connection. Okay? That's just true. And it's weird that it's true because you'd think it's the other way around. But it's those people who have learned to cry out and see the gap and, and call it for what it is and realize that you've never seen a real mountain that then can appreciate it when it comes your way. When God calls you up here to work for Google or Amazon or Boeing or whoever else moves here for some other reason. And you can be thankful to God. Wow! A real hike. So that's my, that's my, basically, let me just say it like this. My stated goal today is to convince you to work hard at becoming better complainers. Because that will, in time, force you to become better thanksgivers. What a strange thing to do. I'm going to teach you guys how to complain today. Now, as I said before, this didn't come out of the text, but I want to show you 
in chapter 11 of John, we've been going through John and seeing the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus' final miracle in the Gospel of John, this final sign that he has power even over life and death itself, and he brings his good friend Lazarus back to death, sort of strangely because he lets him die when he could have saved him, like he had done for so many other people from the disease and sickness, but he lets him die, and he says it's for your good so that you might believe that I am the Son of God, that I am the one sent, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, so that you'll know that without a doubt that I allow Lazarus to die, and they don't know at the time, but Jesus says, because I'm going to bring him back to life and show you I have that kind of power. And so Mary and Martha, they come to Jesus, and this is important if you weren't here, and they complain to Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you come sooner? Why didn't you come faster? Why didn't you heal our brother Lazarus? Why did you let him die? And so Jesus says, again, so that you may believe. And so he then raises him from the dead, and of course they come to see, oh my goodness, from one degree of belief to another degree of belief, and that is how belief happens, just so you know, one degree to another. They see the majesty and the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who's come to give his life as a ransom for us. And so they see it, and right after that, a very strange things happen. So let me read it to you, because you would think everybody's giving thanks, Right? Right? I mean, we got a guy on the scene who can raise people from the dead. This is a good thing. He seems like a good man. He's helping people. And so you would assume, wouldn't you, that everyone would be full of thanksgiving. But they're not. Let's read about it. Here we go. So John chapter 11, verse 45, goes like this. So John is one of Jesus' disciples. He walked with Jesus. He saw what he did, and he writes this down for us so we can understand what's happening. He says, after Lazarus comes out of the tomb, verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who, had, who came to Mary and saw what Jesus did believed in Jesus. But, but, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So if you haven't been tracking with us, there's a group that is sometimes John calls the Jews, um, and, and if he's talking about them in a slightly negative sense, it's because these are the Jewish elites, the, the leaders, they were, also, they were the political and the religious leaders of the community, and, and they didn't like Jesus. And the Pharisees are part of that group of the religious elites in Jerusalem. And so it says some of them believed, and some of them ran off to tell the people that don't like Jesus what he had just done. And verse 47 goes like this. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin, which is like the ruling council. And they were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is very, we'll come back to this verse here. It's a very important verse. If we let him go on like this, what, just raising people from the dead, proving that he's got a power that we don't have, the Romans will actually see all this sort of revolutionary fervor, and they're worried that the Romans will then come in and squash this revolutionary fervor, which would mean tightening down. Because the Romans ruled, this was part of the Roman Empire at the time, but the Romans let the Jewish people kind of rule themselves in a way. 
even though they collected taxes and kind of had oversight, but they really let them. So they're worried that the Romans will not let them continue to have their own sort of space and place in this area, in the city and all this stuff, but will actually tighten the screws because they think revolution's coming if Jesus keeps doing things like this. So you, you understand? You kind of feel that? Like, yeah, if somebody's raising people from the dead, the common folk are going to get excited. They might turn to Jesus as this revolutionary leader and, and there could be an uprising that needs to be squashed. And these, re, these elites are like, we don't want that. Because we don't want these Romans coming in and laying down a heavy hand. Verse 49. So one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So he says this thing in a very selfish way. He's like, well, let's just hand them Jesus on a platter. They can take Jesus out, and then they can feel like they've squashed the revolution, and that'll be good for us. And then we'll all be safe and keep our places. So he says this, and then John gives us this little editorial note. Look at verse 51. So John now inserts himself into the story and gives this editorial note. He says, he did not say this, Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God all over the world in the diaspora. From that day on, oh, sorry, and then so from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus. So John gives us this little note. He's saying, how ironic is it that these, these sort of self-serving politicians and religious leaders and whatnot... Uh, because they're speaking as the high priest in, in the place of God, and that's the way it worked, they had a special role and a place to speak for God, uh, sort of like the Pope does in the Catholic Church. Um, he prophesies a true thing, even though he's saying it for selfish reasons. That's what John's saying. He's saying, isn't it funny that he said he's going to die for the whole nation, and not just the nation, but the whole world, which John's been talking about in his gospel, because that's actually true. So there's always multiple sides to truth, and that's the paradox of the gospel, that Jesus is going to die. And the Romans are going to think <laughs> that they've squashed the revolution. And the Jewish leaders are going to think that they keep their power. But actually what's happening is Jesus is taking over. So this is the irony. And John just doesn't want us to miss how interesting that is. That God can speak truth through even people who want to kill him. Okay, verse 54. So Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus, asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? Because they know that people are looking to arrest him. They want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. So people are asking, do you think he'll come? So the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. Okay, so that's the end of chapter 11. So three weeks in chapter 11, we made it to the end of chapter 11. But the thing, I, the thing that I thought so perfectly illustrates this idea of the difference between those who complain well and therefore give thanks well versus those who do not complain well and do not give thanks, even for things like people being healed and people being fed, and people being raised from the dead, uh, is these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, this sort of ruling class of Jewish leaders at this time in 
Jerusalem. Now, let me explain why. We were in the car. Me and my two boys, Grayson and Owen. Grayson's eight, Owen's five. Grayson is great at asking questions. And somehow we got on the top. I think they were asking me something about what I was teaching or something. I can't even remember. And we started getting into, I said, do you guys know some of the miracles Jesus has done? And so we were listing off miracles, and our kids' ministry is awesome, and so they learn all sorts of stuff, mainly from kids' ministry, <laughs> and I try to pass on what I can. And, and so they got a lot of them, and I was telling them, yeah, and, and the last couple of weeks we've been talking about, and Jesus even rose his friend Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead four days. And, and, and then I was saying how I actually going to talk this week about how not everyone is, was happy about that. And, and Grayson, he looked at me, and this is the right question to ask. So if you're asking this question, it's the right question. He said, Dad, why wouldn't everyone be happy that Jesus was doing these miracles? Like he just, in his little eight-year-old brain, he could not imagine why everyone wouldn't be happy at this. Bless his heart. Protect his heart, God. But one day he'll see the wickedness of the world, right? Like we're like, yeah, I guess I could understand that. How could the Jewish sort of ruling class these, these leaders, these religious higher-ups, those people who are meant to be teachers of God's word and teachers of God's character and all these things, how could they not be overwhelmingly happy that there was a man on the scene who was bringing shalom, that was bringing the goodness of God in real, tangible ways? How could that be true? Well, the answer is they didn't want new miracles. They liked the way things were. They were very happy with the status quo. Because the status quo meant money for them, power for them, influence for them, status for them, control for them, and freedom to do what they pleased. That's humanity. Those who have don't want new miracles. They just don't want anyone getting in the way of what they have. And Jesus, when he comes, when he advents, he always gets in the way of the status quo, of the things that we already have. So we'll see as we go. They're so worried that this raising Lazarus from the dead, that they actually want to take Lazarus out too, so that he'll stop telling his story of what Jesus did. They want to take anyone out that gets in the way of the status quo because the status quo is good for them. That's humanity. And that's not just them, that's us. Okay? That's all of us. So the key word, the key verse here I want, I want to focus on is verse 48. They said to each other, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our place, our power, our influence, our money, our status. 
the freedom to do what we want to do, our control. They'll take that away. We can't have that. So we can't let him keep doing what he's doing. You see it? Now, let me pause, press pause here for a second. This is not the main point of my, my sermon today, but I, I want to focus on this because there's something really profound in it. So I'm pausing from the main train of thought as everyone, don't get lost here. Paused, put it on the bookshelf, I'm taking it off the bookshelf in just a second. But I want to tell you a gospel principle here because I think it applies to a lot of us. The gospel principle goes like this. You will reject Jesus and the work he wants to do in your life if you are more scared about what you will lose than excited about what you will gain. Let me read it again. You will always reject Jesus and the work he wants to do in your life if you are more scared about what you will lose than more excited about what you will gain. That's the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the haves in this book of John. I remember, many of you know my story, in 2007 my sister Kim was killed in a bicycling accident. And I remember the 18 months that followed that accident and that death. And if you know my story, you know God showed up in a very powerful and profound way in my life. Very unexpected. He started transforming a lot of things. And he started going at a lot of things that I'd worked very hard to establish. And they were good things. They weren't even bad things. I had worked very hard in a very unsexy field of study called accounting. I mean, this is not something you go into because you just you want all the power and control. You just want a good life. <laughs> okay, so you go in and you're like, I guess I can count things. I seem, to have, I seem to be able to put things in the debit column and the credit. I seem to be better than all my other business school friends. I guess I'll do it and I'll get a job. And I did get a job. I worked very hard at that and I got a master's degree in that. And I worked my tail off to pass all four parts of the CPA exam. And if, you're, if you know anything about it, CPAs who have passed the bar and the CPA say the CPA is harder than the bar exam. Lawyers, gotcha. We can talk about that later if you, want to, if you want to debate. But it's a hard test. And uh, I passed it. So I had a lot of things going for me. I, I'd, I'd been and I'd finished the gruntiest years of my life at my big four firm, Deloitte. And I was, I had my future. You know, I, I was on a good trajectory. Things were going well. And then God just kept nagging at me and putting pressure on me to make dramatic shifts in my life. So this was even after Kim had died. I'd shared the Consider message at her memorial. Even after we'd done the first benefit concert called the Consider Concert here in Seattle, I still thought, well, I'll just go back to accounting. And God just kept pushing me in another direction, and I kept fighting Him. And, and I, I mean, and I read this, I was like, I've said that to God. I've thought that thought in those 18 months before I, I succumb to his guidance. That's a good way to think about how God works. I succumb to his guidance. And, and we're here today, and, and I couldn't be happier that I surrendered to God. But there were 18 months where I fought tooth and nail for the things that I had because I was more scared about losing them than I was excited about what I had to gain. So I finally succumbed. But in that fighting, in that wrestling with God, I was thinking this very thought, verse 48. If I let him go on like this, 
Who knows where I'll end up? That's what I was thinking inside. If I let Jesus go on like this and keep pushing me down these roads that I never thought I'd walk down, if I keep letting him go, who knows where I'll be? So I fought God's revolution in my life for quite some time. And then when I finally succumb, I'll tell you what. The last decade plus has been way more than I could have ever dreamed about. The amount of life, the amount of love, the amount of light that has come into my life and my atmosphere because I gave in to God's directive. I gained way more, but man, I fought. And I said, if I let you go on like this, Jesus, who knows where I'll end up? So the principle is very real to me, and I'm guessing it's very real to you, and I don't know which side of the decision you're on. You may be saying to yourself, if I let him go on like this, who knows? I may become one of those weird guys like Dave. I don't know if I want that. (laughs) I'm going to walk away from that, because if I let him go on like this, it's starting to make too much sense, these things Dave's saying and Ryan's saying and my cohort leaders are saying, it's making too much sense. If I let them go on like this, I may be one of them, and I'll lose all my control. I may lose all my money. I may lose all my power, all my influence, all my status. I may lose friends. If, he, if I just let them go on like this, so I'm going to run. You might be on the edge of that, or you might be on the other side of that, and you come back. You said, that was a bad idea, and I think I'm going to surrender, even if begrudgingly, to his guidance. Now, this principle doesn't just work on, on sort of a career level, and it doesn't just like work on a, a level with the Pharisees or the religious leaders or the political leaders. It, it also works on other levels. So you may experience this gospel principle in romantic relationships. Where you feel God's nudge. I need to leave that relationship. But you might be more scared of what you're losing than what you could potentially gain. You have to determine if God is calling you or if it's something else. This can happen with your habits or your hobbies. But I, but I know that and that's fun for me. Or This gives me some level of comfort, so I'll just stick with these. I'm, I'm more scared of losing what I know I have here than, than opening myself up to something new. This can happen with substances, alcohol, marijuana, other drugs where, where you just, but this gives me a level of comfort and satisfaction and joy. I, I'm just more scared of giving that up than what's on the other side of the, of, the, of the bend. But you will always reject Jesus and his work that he wants to do in your life if you're more scared about what you will lose than excited about what you'll gain. I want to I say one final one. I separated it here because I think Maybe we don't have a lot of people. I don't know. I don't, some people with the first three. I don't know. This one, I think, is, is really real for a lot of us. It's been real in my life at times. Even something like a struggle with your own anxiety or your own depression, your own bitterness or your own unforgiveness, perhaps of a parent or an arch enemy. That, too, can be something that you hold on to so dearly because you know what it is. It becomes close like a friend, and you hold on to it. 
And when Jesus comes after it, and he says, I'd like to take that away from you. I'd like, I'd like to remove that from your life. You say, not that. This has been with me since I was a teenager. I've had bitterness and anger and resentment from my parents and, what, and how they parented me since I was a teenager. To give that up, I don't know what I'd be if I, if I, if I forgave them. I, I don't want that. It's very, this is a strange category, but I find it to be, particularly amongst church-going peoples, one of the most important things to ask. Are you willing? Are you more scared of what life would be like if you lost that bitterness, if you lost that unforgiveness, if you lost that anger, if you lost that depression, if you lost that anxiety? Are you more scared of that than you are excited about what life would be like on the other side? Because if you don't wrestle with that question, you are already rejecting Jesus and keeping him at arm's length because he wants to help you with that. I'm not saying he'll take it all away. That's not what I'm saying particularly in the realms of anxiety and depression. He won't take that all away. But you think about something like unforgiveness for an archenemy or a parent, he can take all of that away and give you the forgiveness that he bought on the cross so that you can forgive them in your heart. The question is, are you okay living on the other side of that? And if you're not, you will hold on to the status quo just like these religious elites in Jerusalem. You'll hold on to it so tightly because you can't imagine living without anger towards your parents. If Jesus took that away, I'm not so sure it's a good thing. So I'm going to sabotage his influence in my life so that I don't lose that thing which has always been there, that comforting friend. Even though I know it's not good. But at least I know it. Unpause. <laughs> we're back. And we're back. We're back into the complaining, into the thankfulness. The, what is the difference? Compare now the Jewish elite's reaction to the raising of Lazarus. Compare that to Lazarus' friends. Lazarus' friends are overflowing with thankfulness. They're overflowing with amazement and celebration. Why? Because they were being honest with the true state of affairs. They were lamenting and complaining directly to Jesus, acknowledging that death is the worst. Death literally stinks, Martha will say. And so they complained to him. Where were you? Why didn't you help? And in their lamenting, they're just primed and ready for the thrill of God showing up. Ryan said that last week. The thrill of God showing up. They're ready for it, but they had to do the work to get there, which included complaining to Jesus. I just love Mary and Martha. They just complain right to his face. And you're like, that's in the Bible. Yes, so that we know we can complain directly to the face of Jesus. Talk about that in a second, how to do that. Then in the, in, in the paradoxical, surprising uh, showing up of God, the equal and opposite overflow that was their complaining becomes their thanksgiving. And Christ is elevated. Not despite their complaining, but because of their complaining. It's really a, a strange and beautiful thing. So what I want to be able to say 
And again, I'm still processing. We're, process, we're in a community. We're a family. We're processing this together. I want to be able to say, without lament, there is no true thanksgiving. I'm still, I'm, can I say that? Can I also say, the greater the lament, the greater the thanksgiving. Can I say that? Ah, I think I might be able to. And I'm sort of building to this conclusion over the last several months here at Sedaris. I mean, it's really been 17 years of it because I never knew how to lament before my sister died. And God opened up a world to me that has honestly made me, I think I'm one of the best thanksgivers at Sedaris. I'm one of the best celebrators. I wasn't like that before. If you knew me before, I wasn't like that. I was quiet in the back, sneak in late, sneak out early. Terrible celebrator. Terrible thanksgiver. But I think it was not because I didn't see God. It was because I, I never knew how to lament what I was seeing in the world. So it translated into I could never celebrate what I'm seeing him doing. So I've been working on it for 17 years. But in the last few months, it's been resurfacing, this, this obsession with thinking about lament. And then, and then Ryan sends me this free ebook, And I love free things. Like, if you want me to get to read anything, just tell me it's free. Like, if you have a book you really want to know my opinion on, don't tell me you bought it. Say, hey, I got this free at the grocery store. They're just giving them out. I'm like, I'll read that. It's free. I'll eat anything free. I'll listen to anything. I mean, free just gets me to do whatever you want. Just a little insight. And so he says, free ebook. He may have paid for it, but he knows me. He tricked me. And I, so I started reading it. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Dark clouds, deep mercy. And uh, it's all about lament. And it's the way, and teaching us the way God has designed us to lament. And, and, and telling us that God actually desires us to lament. It's, it's not a malfunction. It's working according to our design. And so I was so fascinated as I began reading it uh, that it made me think that as a community, we are not, very, and now I'm talking about the Sedaris community, we're not proficient in the area, so this is, <laughs> I'm going to say this, you're like, we well, were just talking about lamenting. What it made me realize, this is the strange thing it made me realize, that we're not very good at celebrating. That's actually what it made me think as I was reading the book. And, and, and celebrating God is giving thanks to God, as we should, and, and so... I'm reading a book about lament, and I'm thinking we don't celebrate well. And so, so then I started to wonder whether the problem really was on the opposite side of the coin, that perhaps the reason that we're not celebrating as I think we could, like we haven't hit our peak celebration as a community, is, is not because I just need to tell you celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. It's actually I need to teach you how to lament. That's, that's the realization I had reading the book. We don't celebrate unabandoned because we don't lament unabandoned. We've sort of got a limiter on both, and so it's affecting us. And so I thought of this illustration, I call it the roller coaster of the Christian life, or life with God. And um, what, if, what if the celebration of God's grace and his work in the world is primarily a byproduct of deep and thorough recognition of the poor and powerless state, the true brokenness of our hearts, our minds, our world, 
the true groaning of creation as it longs for release from bondage, what if celebration is just a byproduct of that work? Of course, filtered through the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, what if that's the thing? And so the problem is the inputs are wrong, so the output's a bit muted. Pretty sure that's part of what's going on. I also want to teach you guys how to clap on rhythm. That would help, too. But we're working on all of it, okay? So, but we can work on this part first. That, that may be the last thing, teaching you how to clap. Okay. So if the paradoxical connection between Thanksgiving celebration, between lament and complaining, if it's like a roller coaster, let me explain how a roller coaster works. Me and, and Ryan and Grayson and Lucy, we went on some roller coasters at the end of October. We took our kids down to the beautiful theme park called Wild Waves. If you've never been there, it's because you're not from here. And you only go there if you're from here. <laughs> okay, and I brought Ryan. It's like just down the I-5. It's a nice little mini. We don't have, we don't, if you're from California, we don't have those sorts of things around here. So this is as good as it gets. Wild Waves theme park. And they have a couple roller coasters. But I took Grayson on his first ever like big kid roller coaster. Big wooden roller coaster. And I mean the sheer terror on this kid's face. <laughs> When we're going up the first, right? The clickety-clack? You know the clickety-clack? Tell me, nod your heads if you know about that clickety-clack. You're clickety-clacking your way up this incline, and you're like, where are we going? And the look on his face, he's like, what did you do, Dad? Turn the thing around. I'm like, I think it's on some sort of a timer. I was like, I can't, I don't think we can just haul or stop. I think we just got a clickety-clack. So we're clickety-clack, clickety-clack, And then you get to the top of that roller coaster, and then, the thrill, the ecstasy, your stomach goes up into your throat, and everything in him wanted to turn around, <laughs> give up on the mission, because that clickety-clack is terrifying, especially to an eight-year-old kid. I mean, even I, was, I had been a while, and I was scared. It's <laughs> like... This is Wild Waves. Have they checked the safety on these things recently, you know? The dad bone is kicking in. And then, so I'm clickety I mean, it's like, but you need the clickety-clack to get the inertia required for the celebratory drop, right? You can't have the celebratory drop. You can't get your stomach up in your throat. You can't get all that without the clickety-clack. So you got to do the clickety-clack. So we're going up, we're going up, and we hit the apex, and paradoxically, the best and fastest part of the ride happens right after the most annoying and slowest part of the ride. Right? This is the roller coaster. So our lamenting and our complaint to God are like the clickety-clack. It is necessary, though annoying, the most annoying part of our relationship with God, that he actually wants to, us to clickety-clack in lament and complaining. He wants us to see the brokenness. He doesn't need us to sort of justify it or say it's not so bad or to say, oh, I don't have it as bad as those other people have. He doesn't need any of that. He wants to go through the clickety-clack with you. He wants to sit right beside you in the roller coaster and be like, yeah, this is hard for you to clickety-clack your way into all the ways this world isn't perfect for you, but I'm right here with you. 
and it's slow, and it's painful, and it takes time, but you cannot have that free fall. You can't have that freedom. You can't have that thrill of knowing God without the clickety-clack. It's essential. It's not optional. If we do not create a deep awareness of our need for grace, then we, when we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, we're lying. We're saying, man, God, your grace, it's sure neato. It's nice. It's swell. Thanks for bringing me on the teacups. It's only amazing if you clickety-clack with God and you do the hard, slow, annoying work of saying, God, my life is not what I feel like it should be. This world is not what I feel like it should be. I don't have control over my desires and the flesh and the way I think I should. God, help me! So how do we get better at complaining? How do we get better at the clickety-clack? How do we stick in it so that we can get all the way up for all that inertia? That's when, after Ryan sent me the book, after I've been thinking about this for the last months, after I've been thinking about this for 17 years, that's when I, we came to this idea, when you come to church on a Sunday morning, maybe we should help you clickety-clack before we help you. Ah! Right? I was like, it's our fault. <laughs> like, that's what, like, if you want to hear anything, it's like, I was like, I'm messing this up. We want to go straight into the celebration, but most of you haven't clickety-clacked all week. So if you've come early, you've seen the doors have been closed. The music has been loud but ethereal in here and sort of somber in a way. And you're like, this is not what it used to be. Yes, because we're trying to get better at this. And then we created, and I'm going to walk you through them here just real quick, uh, eight slides that will walk you through lamenting, leading with lament. Our, if our celebration comes on the tail end of lament, but when we come to service, there's no time to lament, then it's no wonder that our celebration or our thanksgiving is muted. And so we created a pre-service so you can come early. We will start late, but you can come early and start churching early. And part of churching might be leading with lament. And at different moments and at different times, this rhythm might be more... I'm not saying everyone has to do it. That's why we close the doors. We still want you to connect, have great conversations, see your friends, all that stuff. And you can come early for that too. But if you need to come in here and spend some time lamenting because you haven't been doing it all week, and you know if I don't bring my complaints to God, I'm probably not going to worship Him and celebrate Him very much. We're going to do that for you. We're going to help you do that. And so we've got these slides. I'm going to walk you through them. The first one is, just like the principle says, lead with lament. So, oh, let's go back. Take a few minutes to bring your laments to the Lord in prayer. So this is very personal time with the Lord. So... You come in here, that's why we have the music loud. We want you to feel like you have space here just to talk to God, okay? So the second slide, put that one up now, right? It says, uh, what is lament? Well, it's the way Christians bring their sorrow to God. So I'm going to stop here and say, every Christian has some sorrow to bring to God. And if you're sitting there and like, I'm probably never going to do that, that's not for me, I'm kind of an optimistic person, 
I've got nothing but thankfulness. This is exactly why we created it. You're lying to yourself. Every Christian has sorrow. Stop comparing your sorrow to somebody else's sorrow. Don't compare your loss to my loss. Don't compare your marriage to my marriage. All of us have something that is not right. There is a gap. There is a desire unmet. There is sorrow to be brought to the Lord. So this is for every Christian. This isn't just for those melancholy Christians. And probably it's for those who don't think they need it, that need it most. Maybe you've never actually thanked God because you've never complained to Him. So it's the way all Christians bring their sorrow to God. So maybe we need to just make an editorial note, add all. Because that's not always, I'm not going to be up here hollering about this every week. Okay, next slide. Slide three. Why lament? So lament is how we live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. Okay? So everyone, there is a hardness to life. And God is sovereign and in control. So those are the poles. And we all live somewhere in between those. And we can trust in his sovereignty and also lament and complain. Both happen at the same time. So lament is the way we do it. So without lament, we won't process our pain. We won't process our silence. We won't process our bitterness. And even anger can dominate our spiritual lives instead. Without lament, we won't know how to help people walking through sorrow. So it is about you, first and foremost, but then you're not going to be good at helping anybody else. You're going to be that friend who says the totally wrong thing when someone loses a loved one. You're going to be the one always trying to find the brighter side. And it's not helpful. When someone is going through grief, don't be the one. Like, think in your head, don't say the wrong thing. (laughs) Ask God, what should I say? And sometimes when someone's going through sorrow, it's just don't say anything at all. Just be near them. But if you don't cultivate this processing your own sorrow, you will be very bad at helping a friend process sorrow. Okay, so without lament, we won't know how to help others walking through sorrow. Instead, we'll offer trite solutions, unhelpful comments, or impatient responses. Or we just won't reach out at all. I experienced this. It's one of the most painful things. People don't know what to say to me after losing my sister, and they still don't. And like, my sister died on St. Patrick's Day. So anyone that was close to us should know St. Patrick's Day is always the anniversary. And about three years in, pretty much everyone stopped sending, hey, I'm thinking and praying for you. Why is that? And I've talked to friends who have actually talked to me about it and said, like, I don't know what to say. It's like, there's nothing to say. Just acknowledging it still hurts means the world to us. But it's amazing how many, and these are good people. <laughs> these are good people that don't know how, so they, they step away. Okay, so, um, so what is lament? Why we lament? And the next slide is, what is the next slide? How to lament. How to lament. Okay, so how to lament. Uh, the first thing is we address God personally. Okay? So we address him personally. So again, a lament is not sort of an impersonal activity towards God. It's a very personal activity towards God. I don't have time to, to, to read this, but go read Lamentations 3, and you will see the roller coaster in effect. It is like this. It is, God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? This is terrible. You're the worst. 
but also I trust you, and this is great that you'll never leave us and forsake us, your loving kindness. It's a roller coaster, so you can go read that. But it's a very personal. It's not addressing God as an idea or God as someone way out there. It's addressing him face to face. So it's, it's a personal address to God. So when you come to him in prayer, call upon his name. Pray in the name of Jesus, the personal name that God has given us after the first advent, the revelation of God in the flesh. So we dress him personally. The second thing is we bring our complaint. We bring our complaint. So we identify in blunt language the specific pain or injustice. Why or how is often part of the complaint. Why, oh God? How long, Lord? Very specific. What is the feeling that you have, right? <clears throat> so don't just say generally, God, the world is not as it should be. That won't work. <laughs> God will know that you are not engaging in the process. It has to be very specific. And, and it might feel weird at times. You're like, I don't, my problems aren't as bad as somebody else's. God knows that. He, he's not like, oh, man, I didn't realize somebody else had it worse. But he wants to talk to you, okay? So you bring it very specifically. Like, you know, God, this person I work with just eats so loud in their cubicle. I can't focus, God. How long, you know? Very specific. <laughs> No, well, that might not be the best, but, you know, gives you an idea. Okay, and, and so when you're reading this, and when I've been saying complaining to God, you may, you may be thinking to yourself, oh, this doesn't feel right. It feels very strange for me to think of Christians complaining to God. I've been taught my whole Christian life, we should not complain to God. And, of course, let me say this, complaining can be a sin. Absolutely. Complaining can definitely be a sin. <laughs> Just like anger can be a sin, but also Jesus was angry. And so Grayson asked me another great question. Grayson is a great budding theologian. That's my heart <laughs> melts when he asks. He's like, Dad, is it a sin to flip over tables? He said that to me. I said, Oh man, you've been reading your Bible. Because he knows Jesus went into the temple and flipped over tables, and he was furious. He was angry. I, and I, so I had to explain to him, Grayson, most of the time, flipping over tables is not okay. But there, are, there is a moment. And I explained to him how Jesus' anger was righteous anger. Because there were people who were profiting and making money off of God's worship. Not okay. Jesus was furious. He was angry, and he f literally flips over their tables, destroys their property, and it was not a sin. Because see, Grayson knows Jesus flipped tables, and I've been told Jesus is sinless. Come on, Dad, explain that to me. And the answer is, of course, it's nuanced. This isn't like a Sunday school felt bored, or it's not simple. It's not Kantian ethics. It's kingdom ethics. It's gospel virtue as modeled by Jesus. And so I said, yes, flipping over tables, usually wrong, but might be right. <laughs> Let's ask the Lord. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if he was planning to flip some tables or what. In the same way, I think tr this is true of complaining. There are clear examples of sinful complaining in the scriptures, such as the people of God grumbling in the desert in the book of Exodus, 
Where is God, like, God's clearly showing up for them and giving them everything they need, and they, it's not enough for them. So there are sinful, unrighteous forms of complaining. But we have tons of also righteous complaining in the Scriptures. Like I said, the book of Lamentations. God wouldn't have preserved it for us. He wouldn't have given us His Word and said, look, this is good. We wouldn't have a third of the Psalms, like I said. We wouldn't have the prophets. The prophets are continually complaining. And all of this is righteous complaining. And then in the New Testament, as I said, Mary and Martha give us a beautiful example of righteous complaining right to the face of Jesus. Now, of course, part of why it's okay to complain is we don't have all the answers. We don't know what God is going to do. Mary and Martha didn't know that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus, and so God is very understanding. Now, if he does tell us what he's going to do and we keep complaining, then it becomes unrighteous. So this is a, I mean, I've got to do a whole sermon on this sometime, but how do we know when it's righteous complaining versus unrighteous complaining? It's very difficult to know. There's some obvious examples of unrighteous complaining, like thinking that your football team never commits a penalty ever is unrighteous complaining, though I understand it. So we know kind of what's obviously not, but like, There is some gray area, and we wrestle with, is our complaining righteous or unrighteous? But God wants to and asks us to bring our complaints to him. Now, some of you are, are, again, that same type of person that says, like, I'm just going to play it safe because it's too hard to know what's righteous and unrighteous, so I'm just not going to complain at all. And again, you're going to fall into that trap of your thanksgiving will be always muted because you are not bringing You're complaining to God. And if you bring unrighteous complaining to God, guess what? He died for that too. So don't be the, let me just play it safe kind of Christian. Bring it all. And God will teach you over time if your complaining is actually unrighteous or righteous. So um, there's a a woman named uh, Johnny Erickson uh, Tata, and she is sort of an expert on lament She herself was paralyzed as a teenager. She dove off of a dock and hit the ground and was uh, under the the water and was paralyzed. And there's this, her story is a miraculous story of God restoring not her physical body, but her spiritual body. And she has touched hundreds of thousands, if not probably millions of lives with her story and an organization she started calling Johnny and Friends that helps families uh, living with children with disabilities and it's amazing ministry. And she uh, wrote this about her own story. Right, right after, when she's in the hospital laying there, she talks about how she wanted to die, and she was try- her neck was already broken, but she was trying to break it more. Just to end the pain. And she writes this, she says, then something changed. She says, when we are in pain, God feels the sting in his chest. Our frustrations and questions do not fluster him. He knows all about them. He wrote the book on them. More astoundingly, not only does he understand, but more astoundingly, she says, he invites us to come and air our grievances before him. So this is a woman writing decades after she had to learn this the very hard way. And she talks about how she finally in the hospital said, God, fine, if you won't take me from, if you won't give me death, then teach me how to live. And she learned that living comes through 
bringing your grievances to God and him answering and giving you comfort through them. So we, we do have to learn to complain to God. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Okay, next slide. Mm. So ask boldly. Ask boldly. Specifically call upon God to act in a manner that fits his character to resolve your complaint. So when you bring your complaint, pray specifically what you think resolution looks like. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to answer. and He's not a bad God if he doesn't answer how you say, but just bring, I think this would fix it as long as that fixing is within his character, okay? Next slide. Then choose to trust. And that's what Joni Erickson taught us saying. Choose to trust. Yes, I don't understand why this happened to me. I don't understand why I'm paralyzed for the rest of my life. But I do know that you're sovereign. I do know that, that your plan for me is not over. And so I'm going to choose to trust you, God. So teach me how to live, she said. I'm going to bring my grievances and you're going to teach me how to live through them. That's me choosing to trust. I'm going to affirm in my prayer. So you bring your complaint to him, and then you affirm to him, God, but I don't know what you know, and I trust you, and I'll keep rolling with you even as I wait. And I'll be here next week, or tomorrow morning, and I'll bring my grievance again. And you can bring your grievance to him as many times as he draws you in. He's not going to grow old of hearing your grievance. Next slide. So what to lament? We grieve aloud to God in the spirit, that's a key term, in the spirit concerning what is making you sad, frustrated, bitter, or annoyed. So again, very specifically, with specific examples, choosing to trust, you bring in the spirit, you bring your lament. God, this is making me sad, God. This is making me frustrated. This is annoying me. I, I don't know if I can take this anymore, God. You bring that very personal thing into your prayer of lament. And you do it in the Spirit, and that's key. <clears throat> because you're, you're, you're saying to God, God, I'm bringing this to you, but yes, if I'm not thinking correctly, change my understanding. It means that you're trying not to bring just your flesh into this prayer, but your spirit. And you're, and you're inviting God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, to access your inner parts, to search and sift through all of these annoyances and help you discern if they are in fact right, righteous annoyances or not. So you're inviting the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit of God is searching you, it means that you must not allow other spirits to inform your lamenting. And that's very key. Because often when we are lamenting, we, we can open ourselves up to the spirit of our age, which is one who wants to push us farther and farther down into those sadnesses or annoyances or frustrations or anger. So we just have to make careful that we are, and we are, if we're truly interacting with God and His Spirit, we are protected from those others. But just be careful that you don't allow yourself to be pushed further and further down because there are other spirits in the world. So that's a key phrase, to grieve in the spirit. Your sadness, your frustration, your bitterness, your annoyance. And yes, you're correct if you're thinking this. Did God invent counseling? <laughs> the answer is yes. He invented it. This is what a good counselor does, right? You go to your counselor and you tell them your sadness, your annoyance, your frustrations. You don't always have to filter and do all the processing. You just bring it as it is. 
and they hear it. And God is the original, the OG. He's the original counselor. You can bring to him the same things that you bring into the counseling. And, and we are all for counseling here. We have a whole fund set up to help people with it. But make sure you're doing it in concert with, in parallel with, bringing it to the counselor, the God Almighty. He's the original. It was his idea. And he is the most affordable. I've looked into it. <laughs> so just, just maximize on your you know, benefits plan. Maximize the free. And also, if necessary, add the uh, for pay stuff. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm definitely running out of time. So let's go to this slide six. And I haven't even got to the best thing. Okay. <laughs> slide six. Okay. So. Grieve aloud to God in the spirit concerning the broken world we live in, the increasingly hostile culture, the injustices of society, the unfairnesses of the political system, disease, death, all that stuff. You bring that stuff to God in lament. Now, I am married to my wife, and she's a nurse at Seattle Children's Hospital. And man, she can bring home one of the cases she's dealing with, and she'll, if she tells me in detail, it just about crushes me. And so I have watched her and observed her and seen how important lament and, and grieving aloud and complaining to God on behalf of her patients, on behalf of the families, for the brokenness of this world. That is so important to her job. I watch her do it. And if she doesn't do it, and she tries to hold it, the weight of it will crush her. Watch that too. And so one of the things I try to help her with, like I'm trying to help all of us with, and I know we have a lot of nurses in here and a lot of medical professionals, so I'm hoping this is helpful, is, is when you experience, like she does disease or birth defect or, or something, when she encounters it, she has to know it is not her problem to fix. It's not her problem to fix. God will use her to help, but it is not her problem to fix. She cannot identify with the problem. She cannot hold the problem. Her job is to take the problem and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Day in and day out. Every time she goes to the hospital, she, she has to create a ritual of laying down this problem of brokenness in the world at the feet of Jesus. And if she doesn't do that, she would not have lasted 10 years in nursing. Not at Seattle Children's Hospital. This weight will crush her. It crushes me with one example in like six months. She just spares me from it, but when she tells me, I can't handle it. She has to come very good at laying it at the feet of Jesus. Now, if she doesn't, and there's lots of reasons why you, you might not have known that you could do that. So I'm telling you, you can do that. That's the way it should work. It could also be that she's a fighter. She is a fighter. Her pride can get in the way. Her self-righteousness could get in the way. She might have, a, and pastors have this the worst, so don't think, I talked to her about this, by the way. I don't think I'm like throwing her under the bus. But like pastors have this. Messianic complex can kick in. And if she doesn't fight those lies and give them back to Jesus, then again, it will crush her. Only he can carry this. This is his problem to fix, and he will fix this problem. We don't know when, we don't know how, but he will either in this life or in his second advent. So for all you medical professionals, 
the story of John 11. I want you to become an expert in it. I want you to see how Mary and Martha complain to God about this disease that their brother has and even the death that they experience. They don't hold back. They're totally honest and they're lamenting to Jesus. Why didn't you show up? Why aren't you fixing this? Why are you letting this family go through this? Why, God? Lay it at his feet and then celebrate. Next slide. So much. Grieve out loud to God in the Spirit concerning your own sin, the patterns of your rebellious heart, your selfish nature, and your brokenness and failure in the world. So this is, the magnitude of this last slide is so important. If we cannot do this or fail to do this, our complaining to God will inevitably slip into unrighteous grumbling. If we lead with this lament and come weakly in full awareness of our sin and our rebellion, and we complain to God about our own sin, this is the strangest thing, but we complain to God, God, why am I still so sinful? Why am I still falling short? Why do I still struggle with these things? God, why don't you take this from me? I don't want to wrestle with this anymore. We bring that all to God. We're not accusing him. We're owning it, but we're complaining to him because we know he's the only one that can fix our heart. And if we do that, then we will roll into a kind of celebration as laughter when we sing of his grace, his forgiveness on the cross, his restoration plan for us and our world. But if we don't lament our sin, if we don't get honest with that, if we don't complain as to why we are still far from Eden, then we will not celebrate what he has done through his body and blood on the cross. We just won't. And so because I knew I would run out of time, (laughs) in the spirit, I think I knew this, I printed for you guys a great devotional that I was going to read, but now I will let you take home and read on your own. This will help you do this last kind of lament. So it should be on a seat near you. Um, It's it's titled November 20th, because it's in my New New Morning Mercies devotional by Paul Tripp. And um, I'll just read you the, the first line of it. It says, There's no need to deny, rationalize, or otherwise excuse away evidence of your sin. God wouldn't have sent His Son if your sin were not real. And then you can read the rest. And he has a whole list of the ways we excuse away our sin when it's so evident that we have fallen short, that we have a rebellious heart, that we, we are selfish and we want what we want, not what God wants. And so he gives us this whole list and, and he gives us some insights as to when we stop trying to rationalize or excuse away our sin, but just lament that it's still there, even complain, God, why don't you take it away? Then, then we will begin to roll into the realness of grace, the realness of forgiveness, the realness of hope that comes on the other side of the cross, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful, guys. But you have to lament your sin as well as the brokenness of the world and the injustice in our systems and societies and even your own annoyances and sadness and all that stuff. But you've got to make sure, definitely make sure, you are bringing your sin as a lament before the Lord. Not 
pretending as if you have nothing to complain about. I am still broken. I am still falling into sin. I am still needing the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ, my Savior. Every day, every week, every month, every year. And if you need a little extra resources, we have some. That's the last slide. You can throw it up, Ryan. But every week, this will be on. Uh, I don't know where they went. The decorators put away my lament appendixes. No, they are up there. Some From this book, some how to do this well, and you can train yourself in this. Uh, the author of the book, I don't know how to say his last name, so I'll say Pastor Mark V. He writes this. However, our painful yet honest prayers helped turn our agony into a platform for worship. Lament helped us navigate the wilderness of our grief. So I want you to become really good complainers, righteous complainers to God, lamenters of all that is not yet right in the world. Bring it to God. It creates a platform, like the one I'm standing on, for your celebration. But if you don't do this, your celebration, your thanksgiving will fall flat. So have I accomplished my goal today on this Thanksgiving weekend? Have I convinced you to work at becoming better complainers so that you will one day become better thanksgivers? Have I convinced you to ride the roller coaster of lament and praise, complaint and celebration, grief and grace? If I have, perhaps plan to come a little early one of these Sundays so that you can bring your complaints to God so that your praise might be magnified and he might be glorified. Let's pray.